Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 145, A Conversation with Dr. Ginobile. Dr. Ginobile is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. She is fellowship trained in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and is an expert in menopause and sexual health. And we talk about all of that today. Sexual health is a top concern for many cancer survivors and thrivers. Many patients go into menopause early as a result of cancer treatment. And with menopause, very often people experience something called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And we often think about this in terms of vaginal dryness, but as Dr. Ginobile will go into, it is much more than that, including genital symptoms such as dryness, burning, urination, sexual symptoms, dryness, lack of lubrication, discomfort, pain, urinary symptoms, urgency, frequency, and a feeling of having a urinary tract infection, and much more. And on today's episode, she breaks all of that down for us and some other stuff as well. We talk about what happens at a gynecology visit. We talk about pap smears, thickening of the uterine lining, the workup for that. Honestly, and I say this in the episode, but I think this is a crash course in gynecology in 30 minutes and definitely, definitely a must listen. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Ginobile to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Ginobile. Thank you so much for joining us. And can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you want people to know? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on this amazing podcast. Thank you for doing this podcast. Um, I've learned a lot from listening to your other interviews. Um, so yes, my name is Dr. Shaga Denoble. I am a board certified OBGYN and I practice, solely practice gynecology. So I'm not doing any obstetrical care in my practice. Um, so we're able to focus a lot on uh, various gynecologic problems, whether it be surgical issues, um, pelvic pain, sexual dysfunction, menopause, uh, all those things take plenty of time. So not enough time for obstetrics. Uh, and we do that a lot in our practice. So we have a lot to talk about, um, sexual health, perimenopause, menopausal symptoms. I mean, these are things that I encounter on a daily basis with my patients. And I've had on the podcast, both a, a breast cancer survivor who is a sex therapist, and I've had a medical oncologist who specializes in sexual health. And so I kind of wanted to round it out by having the trifecta, which is you as the gynecologist. <laughs> Um, so let's kind of walk through a couple of the scenarios that I encounter with my patients. So very often people are thrust into menopause rapidly. Yeah. So they don't yeah. go through that gradual, you know, and so very quickly we either put them into menopause through medications mm -hmm. such as Lupron or Zolodex, or we take their ovaries out or chemotherapy puts them into menopause. And all of a sudden they are feeling just horrible dryness frequent urinary tract infection, something from the dryness, sex is not pleasurable. They've 
lost mm-hmm. libido. I mean, there's so many things that go there. So where, if you see someone comes to you mm-hmm. with these symptoms, where do you start? Uh, great question. So, I mean, the first thing to do is to try to assess where the patient's at. Well, first of all, we have to make sure we ask the question. So hopefully the patient is asking, but a lot of times they don't. So that's always a plus when they come to me with those concerns. But a lot of times I have to ask, um, you know, many people are going through menopause are having concerns about their sexual health. Do you have any? Or patients who are um, who have breast cancer or are breast cancer survivors may have sexual concerns. Do you have any? So a lot of times we have to ask. That's number one, to get to the problem. And then we want to assess what, you know, ask a lot about questions about their sexual function. There's so many different problems that can occur. There are problems with arousal, problems with desire, pain issues, um, lubrication issues. So it's very, very important to ask the questions to try to target what are maybe the top one, two or three potential causes of their concern. Because as you know, sexual function is um, so complex. There are many levels that play into sexuality and we have to hone in on what are the actual concerns. So that's the first step. Um, is it pain with penetration? Is it pain afterwards? Is it UTIs? Um, is it just no desire, no libido? So we have to figure that out because the how to address it depends on what the main concern is. So that's step number one. I really love how you kind of frame that, you know, many people experience, you know, it's very non-judgmental. It's kind of yeah. it opens the floor of saying this is normal if you're feeling libido, dryness, problems with sexual health. So I really like that kind of open, open framework. Let's talk first about dryness. Yes. So dryness is a very common complaint. And I'm sure you hear that a lot as well. All, all the dry. time. All the time. And we, you know, in our, my practice really start by talking about vaginal moisturizers and lubricants and separating yeah. the difference between the two. So I'd love to know your take yeah. on what your recommendations. Yeah. So dryness is a very common um, issue with, and it results um, from the lack of estrogen, whether it be natural menopause or surgical menopause, like you mentioned, or, um, you know, iatrogenic menopause uh, for treatments of cancers, breast cancer, for example. And those decline in estrogen levels really, really cause a lot of changes in the vaginal skin and the vaginal tissues. And one of the common symptoms we see is dryness. It's actually one of the earlier symptoms. Some women do not have pain at that point, but they feel dry. So the first step, the first steps for that are use moisturizers and lubricants. And many patients don't know the difference. So we have to educate them on what is a moisturizer, when do you use it, and what's a lubricant. So I always explain that moisturizers, everyone should be using it two, three days a week. And that is regardless if you're having sex or not, regardless of penetrative sex, it just really helps improve the integrity of the tissue, the vaginal tissue, and it improves the elasticity and it just keeps everything moist. No different than you know moisturizing your skin in the winter because of dryness. Um, and hyaluronic acid-based moisturizers are really the best. There are several different kinds, just water-based um, moisturizers, but hyaluronic acid is really, really good. And there are several different on the market. Um, Reverie is one by the company Bonafide, which I recommend a lot, and it's a suppository. Or you can use coconut oil if you um, solidify it in the refrigerator. You can make a little suppository yourself and just insert it. Yeah, and it works great as a moisturizer. So moisturizers, I I tell all patients to use that if they can, if they're not annoyed by having to insert something every day or every three days. That really, really helps the tissue. And then lubricants are to use during any kind of penetration, whether it be um, with self-stimulation, using a vibrator, um, or with penetrative sex with a partner. And it can really help reduce the friction. And Lubricants also come as water-based, which tend to dry out quickly, so mm-hmm. I don't love those. 
Silicone based are really great. Uh, like Uberlube is a brand name that I recommend. There's a few on the market that are silicone based. You do want to make sure they're not too acidic because that can cause burning. And you want to avoid any um, additives like parabens and other additives. Mm -hmm. So the more pure, the better. But uh, silicone based are really, really great to use. And that you can use during penetrative sex or any kind of penetration to help reduce the friction. And that can really help make things more comfortable. I find there's such a stigma in like using these tools. Mm. You know, magazines tell us sex is spontaneous and yeah, yeah, you know, and and it should be just this carefree thing where you don't use anything. And I think it's really important to have the conversation yeah. that many people do need the assistance of the lubricants and the moisturizers. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's going to help you have a much better sexual experience. Absolutely. So destigmatizing that is very, very important. Um, it should be just a routine, you know, routine part of sexual activity. Now, tell me a little bit about the lasers. Okay. So for patients who have tried moisturizers and lubricants, and they're still having symptoms, dryness, burning, irritation, pain with penetration, even bladder irritation, symptoms of like UTI or urgency, all these symptoms we, we call part of genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And um, if the moisturizers and lubricants are really not doing enough to help, then we can discuss uh, local estrogen therapy, which may be applicable to some patients and patients who want to avoid or cannot use anything hormonal at all. Um, there are lasers on the market. So they're either CO2 lasers or erbium YAG lasers that can be used vaginally. Uh, and we, the lasering is done internally. So in the vaginal mucosa inside the vaginal canal and also at the opening, the introitus and the labia, especially the labia minora on the inner side of the labia minora, the medial side. And these lasers work to stimulate, they just morphologically change the tissue. They can help stimulate production of collagen and elastin, elastin for elasticity and can um, reduce the symptoms associated with GSM or genital urinary syndrome of menopause. The lasers are, we have some studies, small studies, not the best studies. A lot of them are, you know, retrospective or they're not the best quality studies. So we definitely need long-term studies, um, blinded, controlled studies to really show an effect. But we, the studies that we have do show an improvement in symptoms when you screen patients for symptoms. And it can be very helpful for patients with breast cancer who cannot use any estrogen as an alternative. And um, in my practice, I've been using a laser, the CO2 laser, going by the brand name Mona Lisa for about eight years. And a large majority of our patients that we treat have an improvement in their symptoms. So it can be very helpful. So we'll talk about vaginal estrogen in a minute, but yeah, the yeah. Mona Lisa, is yeah. it a time thing or it's several times? It is. So the initial year that you do the treatment, we, we recommend three laser treatments. And the laser treatments take five minutes. Patients are always worried, is this going to hurt? And it doesn't really hurt. The lasering itself does not hurt in, inside. There's a probe that we have to insert, and that can be a little bit uncomfortable, but I've yet to have a patient who I cannot insert it comfortably. Um, and then at the opening, we do use apply some numbing cream because external of the hymenal ring, you may have pain with the laser, some burning sensation. So we do use a topical numbing to make that very comfortable. The procedure takes about five minutes, but we do three treatments spaced out by six weeks initially. Then about once a year, and everyone's a little bit different, we do one touch-up laser. Some patients go longer, a year and a half. Some come a little bit earlier, about 10 months to say, you know what, lately I'm feeling the symptoms return and I want to touch up and they can do it then. Yeah. There are no standard, because this is not super well studied, we don't have a standardized protocol, but that's the protocol that we use in our office. 
So I think that is a great option. I think something we don't talk about too much. Um, Vaginal estrogen, you know, there's such a stigma around it and Mm -hmm. good time to debunk that myth that vaginal estrogen is safe um, for patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. I mean, there's data, um, kind of older data says maybe it's not safe, but a lot of that uses older formulations of vaginal estrogen that we don't use anymore. And they have, there have been studies that show that they measure estrogen levels when someone's on vaginal estrogen and it's not absorbed into the circulation. So I always tell people that it's safe. Um, and the problem is that the package insert for the vaginal estrogen is like danger, danger, do not danger. Right. I think that even though people kind of know, okay, my doctor said it's okay to use, here's the data. They, there's still, I think a lot of hesitation. So it's nice to know that there are other options if someone says, you know what, I get that it may be safe and it is safe, but I'm going to choose for me not to do it. Cause that, that does come up. Yeah, absolutely. And I get that from patients, you know, I okay it with them. Their oncologist okays it and they're still really hesitant. They're just so scared. Uh, and some patients are not, and they're comfortable with the, with using it. What I tell patients with, if they're using vaginal estrogen, which and I explained that it's a very low dose, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, it's not systemic. You know, it's, there's not yeah. much systemic absorption. And especially if you're on a serum like tamoxifen, you're having that anti-estrogen effect on the, at the breast level anyway. So it's, it's okay to use a little bit of local estrogen. But I always tell them, don't go all the way up. Use it at the lower two-thirds of the vaginal canal, especially at the opening. There's more absorb, absorption possibly like all the way in the upper mm-hmm. parts of the vagina where the cervix and the uterus, there might be a little bit more absorption. So if they focus it on the distal part of the vaginal canal and then the introitus, the opening, which is really where most of the symptoms are anyway, um, then it's really safe to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still some patients are not comfortable regardless of that data. Yeah, I think it's I think it's nice to be able to have options. Sometimes we will also talk about vaginal lidocaine Mm-hmm. as an yeah. option for some people as well. So I think, yeah. you know, being open to talking about and having mm-hmm. a gynecologist that you trust is and yeah. can have these conversations with is is really important. Yeah, well, lidocaine is great. Um, and dilators, using dilators to help stretch the tissue, help the elasticity can be very, very helpful. Um, pelvic floor physical therapists are amazing and they do amazing work. And sometimes what I find with patients with atrophy symptoms uh, who we do treat either with a laser or local estrogen or DHEA, which is another hormone we can use vaginally. If they still have difficulty, sometimes those patients, we treat the skin, but they have still painful intercourse due to pelvic floor dysfunction. So sometimes it can get hypertonic pelvic floor muscles, like overly tightened pelvic floor muscles as a result of the initial symptom then this kicks in as a secondary. And until you address that with pelvic floor physical therapy, she will still have pain on penetration. So sometimes we have to do a couple of things, dilators, pelvic floor physical therapy, and treat the mucosa of the, of the vaginal area. And can you see yeah. pelvic floor? I mean, we know we can see pelvic floor dysfunction in yeah. patients who had pelvic radiation, let's say for uterine or yeah. cervical cancer. But can you see pelvic floor dysfunction in someone who's gone through menopause without any local treatment to that area. Absolutely. And I see it a lot. I see it on premenopausal women and I see it in postmenopausal women. It's pretty common in, in, in my practice anyway. Um, I used to think it was more rare, but I find a lot of patients, you can, when you examine, you can feel they have tension there in the pelvic floor muscles and you can sometimes localize pain. And if you press, you know, if you do a gentle exam and they don't really have a lot of pain, it's not at the skin level, when you palpate deeper, you can kind of localize 
the, the pain and it's muscular, it's the pelvic floor. And uh, I see it a, a lot. It can just happen. Um, sometimes that happens based on other um, risk factors like certain exercising women are doing or doing Kegels the wrong way, thinking they're doing it correctly, or um, endometriosis where they have pelvic inflammation and pain that then can trigger pelvic floor dysfunction. So there's many, many causes. It's not just in patients without radiation. And how can a patient who's listening and saying, oh, maybe I have this, how can they tell themselves or do they need Mm. to go and see a gynecologist to have an exam? Well, one of the complaints that they usually report is I feel like there's a wall, whether it's with inserting a tampon or with penetrative sex, they feel like something is blocking, like they're hitting a wall. Okay. And that's something that usually will trigger me like, okay, they probably have pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, So that's a common one. Tampon insertion, pain with with that. and, and then, you know, so, if, and then a lot of times patients will have constipation because the pelvic floor also supports the rectum or they have urinary symptoms. So I always ask, do you have any urgency of urination? Mm-hmm. It's like, you have to go all the time. Do you have any constipation? And a lot of times they'll have that in addition. Okay. I'm like, ah, oh, it's all related to pelvic floor dysfunction. So pel- and if you tell them that's going to get better too with physical therapy, they're more amenable to going, you know, to the therapist. I, I think that pelvic floor therapy is probably so underutilized. Yes. It is. And it's wonderful. I mean, Mm -hmm. and there are so many more pelvic floor. I used to have a hard time finding someone in the area. And there's a lot more now, which is wonderful. A lot of options for patients, but it is underutilized. Yeah. You know, um, I know that sometimes they do more internal therapy or otherwise it's external kind of teaching the person how to use the muscles. And I think it's important for people to know that there are both options patients are hesitant, like, oh, I don't know that I want this exam and all of that. Right, right. So if patients are hesitant about an internal, there are, I know some in the area who do just external work, they can start there. And then once they're more comfortable, then they can go to someone who does internal work. Yeah. And talk to me about dilators. How do they- Dilators are wonderful because you also have shortening of the vaginal canal with atrophy and with um, these changes that happen. So dilators can help, you know, when you insert them and you give gentle pressure, it can help over time lengthen the vaginal canal Mm -hmm. and also- you know, they come in a set of like five or six. There's different dilators on the market. Some are um, silicone-based, uh, different materials. And they come in different in a set of different sizes, maybe five or six sizes. And you start with the lowest, the smallest, that can go in with a little bit of tightness. And then you work your way up. Um, and patients need to do it, you know, if they can do it every day, that'd be ideal. And I ask them to insert it with gentle pressure inside. Um, and then also kind of move it up and down at the opening where they can get some dilation there. And it is a lot of work for patients. So sometimes they don't love doing it, but if there's a patient who's really, really motivated, it can be very, very helpful. Where does one buy dilators? Is this you go on Amazon and you search? You can go on Amazon. Sometimes I pre-buy them and and give them in my office and then they can just purchase it there. Mm -hmm. Um, But vaginismus.com is a great source. Um, There's another website called Middlesex MD that has sets of dilators as well. So you can buy some medical grade dilators from those sites. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think sometimes people don't know where to start. So yes. those websites probably have some great yeah. information. Yeah, they do. They do. So we talked about vaginal dryness, pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. What else presents itself during menopause in terms of GI, GU, GYN symptoms? So I touched on it a little bit, bladder symptoms, like urgency, frequency, feeling like they have a UTI. And then sometimes these patients are on 
antibiotic over and over again, but it's not really a UTI. Sometimes you check the urine, there's going to be bacteria, but it's not really what's causing the problem. So these bladder symptoms are very common as well. Um, and it's also part of that genital urinary syndrome of menopause. So lasers and vaginal estrogen or DHEA, prosterone treatment can really, really help alleviate those symptoms, but so can uh, the moisturizers. So a lot of women have like constantly need to go or they feel like they have a UTI, they're burning. Those kinds of symptoms are pretty common as well. Um, another thing that we see that I'm seeing more of just because we're more aware is um, something called lichen sclerosis, which can happen to as we age. And it's an inflammatory vulvar skin condition, which causes hypopigmentation, scarring of the vulva and shrinking. So like the labia start disappearing okay. and things can get stuck together. So if untreated, the labia, especially at the top around the clitoral hood, can kind of become adherent and stuck. And we see the, cl clitoral, the clitoris buried underneath the clitoral hood sometimes. And the clitoris, can, it's almost like clitoral phimosis, basically. And those patients can either have pain around the clitoris or they have a harder time achieving orgasm with stimulation because now you have the vulva stuck over the clitoris. And that can be opened up and we treat with steroids, estrogen, sometimes the laser. We can physically open up the, the tissue, uh, but that can, that's something we see commonly as well. So what I'm really, lichen sclerosis. what I'm really hearing is that, you know, everyone should be getting a GYN exam. Yes. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Cause we hear a lot. I mean, I, I hear this all the time. When was the last time you went to your gynecologist? Oh, they said I don't have to come anymore cause I don't need a pap smear. And I think there's this, can you talk to yes. me about this? Because yes, yes. Oh, oh my God. It's very frustrating. So when, you know, when data is put out um, to the general public about screening guidelines, it can be very, very confusing. You know, when they start hearing, they read an article, it's on the news. Oh, you don't need a pap smear. You need it every three to five years. Or the doctor even says, you don't need another pap for three to five years. A pap is a specific test. It's just a specific test that we do to screen for pre-cervical cancer, pre-abnormal cells of the cervix. But that is just one small part of the gynecology exam. And when patients hear that, they think they don't have to go at all. Mm -hmm. We need to still do a pelvic exam. We have to check for, um, assess for bleeding issues, assess for sexual health dysfunction. We have to examine the vulva. There are many, you can have lichen sclerosis. You can have, like I mentioned, clitoral phimosis. You can have melanoma of the vulva. You can have, you know, squamous cell cancer of the vulva. You know, I have a patient I saw recently that had a little ulceration, no pain at all. And she didn't even know it was there. I biopsied it and it was VIN3, which is a, you know, a severe dysplasia of the vulva that could turn into vulvar cancer. So all these things we do need to assess, even if you don't need a pap smear, even if you had a hysterectomy and patients think a pap is the gynecology exam. So I always tell patients, you have to be seen. You should get a pelvic exam every year, I, you know, regardless. Really, really important yeah. because I can't tell you how often. And again, like you said, there's all these other things that are done right. at the GYN right. exam. How is there a point where people don't need to go to their gynecologist anymore? Or really, as long as they're in good health and feeling yeah. okay? I would. I mean, elderly, you know, over 80. I mean, there's no set time to stop coming, but um, I still recommend the patients to get examined. Maybe every other year if, if they're elderly. If they have comorbidities, they're in very, very poor health, you know, they have other things they're dealing with and the life expectancy is very low, then of course, then you can skip the GYN exam. But everyone else really should still get an exam. I have old, old ladies that come who've had everything removed, uterus, cervix, ovaries, but they still have a vulva and a vagina and yeah. still need examination. Yeah. Now, on the complete other end of it, when should 
people start start coming to the gynecologist because I know that yeah. has been really a moving target yeah. in the yeah. last decade. We usually recommend age 13 to start seeing a gynecologist, but I always stress to the patient and the moms or the parents that that does not mean we're going to do an internal exam or even a breast exam. So those initial years, it's very important to establish a relationship with the gynecologist because eventually she may have something that she wants to discuss and it's a lot more uncomfortable for the first time you're meeting someone to bring up various issues as a young woman. So it's very good to come and establish a rapport, build that relationship. And I rarely examine patients at that age unless there's a specific reason to do it. But we don't really need to do an examination of a typical 13-year-old who's not sexually active and isn't having major concerns. So a lot of it is like asking about their periods and um, doing a lot of education, education about sexually transmitted infections, education about her choice, education about her body, about sexual activity and um, you know, uh, coercion for sexual activity, all kinds of things. So I recommend 13 and to build that relationship. And then eventually when she needs birth control or she, something happens, she's comfortable to come because you already have a relationship. So it's very, very important. Otherwise, they don't want to open up initially. Yeah. And, you know, the question that I get on my end is, you know, I treat a lot of women who say, well, what should my daughter do? You know, I've had hormone receptor positive breast cancer. I'm nervous about her being on oral contraceptives. And I I always say that I think that, you know, at a young age, it's so like you have to have these conversations and it's a risk benefit, you know, maybe. Yeah. She doesn't stay on birth control for 20 years, but for a short term, that can be right for somebody. But I think building that relationship with a gynecologist is really important. And again, I think that it's that misconception of, well, we don't start pap smears until, you know, 21, right. Right. Um, 21 now. Yeah. um, Yeah. But that's too late. And we can cover, right. It is too late. And then we can cover things like the Gardasil vaccine. A lot of the pediatricians are doing a great job talking about the HPV vaccination, but some don't. And sometimes they want to ask another doctor. So we talk about that prevention. Um, I explain to them what a pap smear is because a lot of them don't know. They think it's just an exam. A pelvic exam equals a pap smear. I have so many patients who come who are in the ER. Oh, they did a pap smear in the ER. I'm like, no, no, no. They did not do a pap smear in the ER. They might have done a pelvic exam, but it's not a pap smear. So just explaining education. Um, Another thing is to review with them all the different birth control options we have. So birth control pills are one, but there are IUDs or LARC methods, the long-acting reversible contraceptive methods. There are non-hormonal um, options. There are um, IUDs, which are lower risk than birth control pills for, for various conditions. So just so they know like what their options are when the time comes, they can be informed. And when they feel like they need the contraception, then they, they're not just scared that it's only the pill and they're going to gain weight or their family member had breast cancer and they're worried. They have to know that there's other options to not shy away from contraception. So a lot of it's education and just knowing what their options are and anatomy. Some, some young girls I have, they have no idea what their anatomy is and I ask them, do you want to go over the anatomy? And they're like, sure. So I give them a mirror and we go through the anatomy of the vulva. You know, not everything is a vagina. <laughs> so just educating them with terminology and the different parts is really helpful and it empowers them. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah. you know, times are changing, right? And we're much more comfortable talking about these and having these conversations. And I think when you empower young women, I think that they carry that with them going forward. For sure. We talked some hap smears are for cervical cancer, as we know. Yes. Yes. Um, Tell me a little bit about postmenopausal bleeding. I know we're kind of going all over the place, but I want to make sure we cover that because I think, you know, as someone who treats gynecologic cancer, 
postmenopausal bleeding is a red flag. And I think sometimes yeah. people think, oh, it must be my period and not, they don't yeah. really worry about it. Yeah. So first you have to define menopause. So menopause is a little retrospective. It's when a, a woman around the age that we would expect, typically expect menopause, has her last period and then no other periods for 12 months. Then we say, okay, you're postmenopausal now. It's been 12 months since your last period. And after that point, any bleeding or spotting or staining of any kind needs to be evaluated because it could be a, a sign of endometrial cancer or endometrial precancerous lesions or other pathology like polyps, mm -hmm. which are for the most part benign, but sometimes they can be cancer. In the perimenopause period, in the transition period where periods are irregular and they're skipping a lot, you know, we do also want to watch out for excessive bleeding and, and bleeding that's too close together because that usually signifies that there's unopposed estrogen or which can cause proliferation of the endometrial lining which can lead to precancerous lesions that could progress to cancer. So that's another period of time. But once there's been 12 months of no period and you're between, you know, most women between 45 and 55 have had their last period, um, but the average is 52 in the US. By age 55, most women have, have gone through menopause, but some are older. But that needs to be evaluated. I always tell patients, just because you have bleeding doesn't mean you have cancer. Atrophy, that dryness is a common cause benign polyps or another cause, fibroids, it could be many things, but we need to rule out endometrial cancer. And that can be done in a very, very simple way, a biopsy of the uterine lining, which a lot of times you can do in the office. So it's easy to diagnose. That's a nice thing about endometrial cancer. Early on, there's usually bleeding and we can diagnose it when it's very early and it can be easily treated without it metastasizing and becoming more, more advanced. Yeah, majority of endometrial cancer is diagnosed <coughs> At that stage, it has not yeah. spread, and it usually can be treated either with surgery or surgery with radiation, and that's it. And I think, you know, again, people do attribute it to dryness or still getting their periods, and and then if we do let it go for a long time, then it can become problematic. Yeah, and one one important you just mentioned about um, before it's really cancer. One diagnosis we see on biopsy is called proliferative endometrium, which is a totally benign condition and women of reproductive age, premenopausal women. But in a postmenopausal patient, that would be a little bit of a red flag for me. I need to watch this patient. So if it's proliferative in the menopause period, it really shouldn't be. Because proliferative just signifies that there's estrogen stimulating the lining. So obesity can be a cause of that or other sources of exogenous estrogen. And it's unopposed, and that can be a risk factor for developing cancer. So those patients I keep an eye on, we talk about risk factor reduction, like weight loss, since adipose tissues do convert androgens and other hormones to estrogen. Educate them about that. And then sometimes some progesterone therapy can be beneficial if they're a candidate. Like an IUD, even a progesterone-releasing IUD is a wonderful thing to consider in a patient who's postmenopausal and has proliferative endometrium. Instead of just ignoring it, because premenopausal, we ignore it. Mm -hmm. But postmenopausal is a whole different you yeah. know, thing to think about. And we see that with tamoxifen also once in a while. That's true. Yes. You know, yes. we see that proliferation and, yes. you know, that gets tricky because we know there's a real risk for endometrial right. cancer. And so people get obviously very nervous, you know, seeing those yeah. side effects and seeing those, that pathology. Right. So we covered a lot. Okay. It's a lot. Crash course, I think, yeah. in gynecology. Is there anything yeah. that we did not talk about? Let me think. I had some. Oh, hot flashes. 
especially okay. with breast cancer yeah, patients. So, stop, let's, let's so that is a challenge mm-hmm. because one of the first line treatments of hot, hot flashes, menopausal hot flashes, it can be estrogen. Systemic estrogen, though. We're not talking about the local low-dose estrogen mm-hmm. that's not systemically absorbed, but systemic estrogen. But of course, for a patient who's had estrogen dependent cancer like like majority of breast cancers they're not a candidate for that and then sometimes we use um some herbal medications some over-the-counter uh you know herbal things that can help with hot flashes low-dose ssri like a low-dose paxil um branded as brisdel can help with hot flashes there's a new medication that just got fda approved yes vioza i just yeah. my first vioza. dose you so, did awesome yeah we'll see how it goes this is a great option for especially patients who have are survivors of breast cancer who are really, really suffering from hot flashes and it's reduced the quality of life. It's really affecting the quality of life. So this is a great, it's a game changer. You know, it targets the, a receptor. Um, it's an antagonist of a receptor in the brain that can help with hot flashes. So this, and it's, it's for moderate to severe hot flashes. Yeah, there's so that's know, something that's new. Yeah, and I, I was ex- really excited to see that because Paxil for people on tamoxifen we can't use because that interacts. So then we're stuck, we, not stuck, but we, we'll use uh, Benlafaxine, which is a Fexor or Lexapro. But a lot of those antidepressants um, also can cause weight gain and impact libido. And those are things that yeah. already our patients are struggling with. So I'm really right. interested in like looking to see how people do with this new one. Yeah. Yeah. If it really you know helps because... I've had people stop medication and stop endocrine therapy for hot flashes, you know, nothing works and they are just miserable. You know, quality of life is so important, whether it's your sexual health, hot flashes, um, just discomfort, quality of life. A lot of patients are willing to risk cancer, increased risk of occurrence um, for quality of life. You know, it's, it's a real thing that we have to, as practitioners and healthcare providers, we have to really keep in mind for compliance. We really have to make sure patients are have good quality of life as much as possible and i think to add to that it's really important not to be judgmental you know so that patients can feel comfortable and 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 say look i'm thinking about stopping my medication or i'm really quite miserable because i think sometimes people are afraid to bring it up they don't yeah you know it's but i have people who have like 20 hot flashes i don't know like a hot flash every hour like they just can't function like or Or you're waking up in the middle of the night, you're not getting good enough sleep, you're tired during the day, and, and it's just really a vicious cycle. It does. It affects everything. And it affects relationships. It affects your libido. Um, just so many, so you, your self-image, it's just not not great. Yeah. So I'm glad we have more and more options for, for patients. Exactly. And I'm hopeful, you know, I think one of the critiques about Vioza was that it was not studied in patients with cancer. Um, yeah. and I, I don't think that it means that it's not safe because it really, it's a complete non-hormonal option. I think sometimes when they do yeah. clinical trials, you just want to keep the data pretty, yeah. you know, Clean. yeah. Um, too many variables. Right. Exactly. So I don't think that it means that it's not safe because I've heard it right. come out as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an right. exciting new drug. Yes. Yeah. So anything else in menopause, perimenopause we should know about? Um, Gosh, just so much with perimenopause, but um, I think just knowing too that your cardiovascular risks really go up around perimenopause and postmenopause. I think women in the reproductive years don't think too much about cardiovascular health. We think more of men, like older men. Mm -hmm. We think of cardiovascular health as something that really is important as women are approaching menopause to make sure that they're optimizing their cardiovascular risk factors, reducing their risk factors. 
and uh, just to reduce risks for cardiovascular disease yeah. in the postmenopause. So very, very important to eat healthy, exercise, um, quit smoking if you're smoking, you know, yeah. control your cholesterol, all those things, very, very important for overall health. And there's actually, I mean, a crazy statistic that more breast cancer survivors die of heart disease than breast cancer, you know, and the, the risk right. factors are so linked that the lack of exercise and the foods that we eat, I mean, those two yeah. things are really, really linked. And I think along with cardiovascular health is bone health. Yeah, bone health too. You know, that's a big cause of, yeah, morbidity and mortality. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, a hip fracture when you're older, is just really not great. Yeah. And that's what I see people, you know, in their fifties and sixties, they're like, Oh, it's just, it's fine now. I'm like, they're like, I feel fine. I've asked you a process. Right. I feel fine. And right. I, I always say to them, I know I, the 55 year old feels fine. I want you to feel yeah. fine at 85 and be able that's to right. walk without fear that a hip fracture can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. I mean, I think this was so informative. Full Thank of you. Where I know you do a lot on social media. Um, tell me a little bit about where people can find you online and also where yeah. you're based. Because I know I was yeah. looking for a new gynecologist. Awesome. I'm based in Wayne, New Jersey. We're in the northern part of Wayne, so not too far from Oakland um, and Bergen County. We're, you know, pretty close to 208. So we're in Wayne, New Jersey. And online, I do have an Instagram. Um, it's your guide doc, your GYN doc. And my website is... Um, you could put in either advancedgynnj.com or if you just put in um, your GYN doctor, that'll also bring you to that website. Wonderful. Yeah. And before we wrap up, tell me top three tips that someone can walk away with from this conversation if they just scroll to this point in the, the end. Okay. Top three tips. One is um, bring up your sexual health concerns with your physician. And if you can't find a physician, you can bring it up to uh, it's very, very important for mental health and psychosocial, emotional health of women. Uh, number two is please use a moisturizer and a lubricant at a baseline, especially for around the perimenopause or postmenopausal. That can be very, very helpful. And number three is you need to see, have someone do a pelvic exam, a gynecologist or a family medicine doctor, someone knowledgeable in gynecology. You should be examined every year. Don't skip. Even if you don't need a pap smear that year, you still need to be examined. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I thought it was incredibly informative, helpful. I was taking notes throughout the whole, uh, the whole episode. I was taking notes throughout our whole conversation and I hope that you learned a lot and found it helpful as well. You can find Dr. Ginobile at Advanced Gynecology of New Jersey, and that is advancedgynnj.com. And you can find her on Instagram at yourgyndoc. She has a lot of great content on there as well. You can find me at Dr. Japonski on all social media channels. And if you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I am always so grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating or review for the podcast as that helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening and being here and I will see you soon. 